So this morning I want to talk about a teaching which to me gives a wonderful focus uh, for daily life, for our meditation practice, and maybe for our lives in general. And I want to express it as a kind of paradox. It's about the way that we both commit deeply to acting as skillfully as possible and work with non-attachment to the outcome of our actions. It's a kind of paradox. I like to talk about it as committed action, non-attachment to outcome. It's a very challenging teaching. And it's a teaching which... um, again, I think can be a wonderful focus for our daily lives because essentially what we find is, is that the practice of working with this teaching is really to see the ways that it's hard to have both committed action and non-attachment to outcome. Usually we fall off in one way. When the outcomes aren't what we want, we get discouraged, we get, um, in some ways, we get attached to the outcomes. And often our, our action doesn't have the energy or the clarity of intention or the, the level of effort. And so for me, it's a wonderful teaching um, to, to guide us in our daily lives and in our meditation practice. And I want to begin with uh, a story of how I personally deepened in my understanding of this core teaching and principle. And it took place when I was living in Kentucky. And I was um, teaching at the University of Kentucky, and I was teaching a class in ethics, and I had about a third of the class were football players. And it was an evening class. It was a 7.30 class. I was teaching football players, and it was the fall semester, which meant it was football season. Do you know what football players are like at 7.30 p.m.? (laughs) Uh, do you know what they've just done for the rest of the day? They, they, they would do some classes typically in the morning, probably on the light side. Um, and then they'd have a big lunch. Then they would have practice for about four or five hours. Then they would have a big meal. And then they would come to my class. <laughs> and... You can see the, the setup for learning about committed action, not attachment to outcome. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing to know about the situation is that ethics was one way to satisfy a requirement. About 20 years before I was doing this teaching, there was some kind of power-broking agreement. And I thought that the philosophy department did very well in this agreement because they managed to have the general requirements for the university be such that every student had to take either two courses in philosophy or two courses in math. (laughs) This this agreement supported the philosophy department for years. And it no doubt was connected with me being hired. <laughs> but because there were just hundreds and hundreds of people who were 
choosing to take two semesters of philosophy. And uh, that was the positive side. The, the negative side was that it was a requirement, and they weren't really interested in the subject matter. And so there I was at 7.30 in the evening. A young teacher, it was like my um, second year of full-time work, and I actually, a lot of people would always ask me, you know, they would assume I was a student, and um, it, that problem later led me to grow a beard to assert my authority. <laughs> but at that point, I don't think I had a beard, and I would sometimes be playful, and um, like at the first class, I would sometimes uh, sit in the back of the room, and they would assume I was a student, and then, you know, when it was time, I would just get up from the back and go to the, go to the front of the room and start teaching, and I like to be playful like that. And anyway, so there I was. It was 7.30. The students um, there, including the football players, mostly didn't want to be there. They weren't interested in ethics. I was passionate about teaching ethics, and it was kind of a collision course, right? (laughs) And so for a number of weeks, I did my best. I was earnest, idealistic. I had a sense of what they should learn. I had a sense of what would constitute learning. And the football players sort of set the tone because they re- what they really wanted to do was to sleep <laughs> or, or, you know, take a nap. It was a lot of energy, big meal. And second best was to, to spend their time during the class telling jokes <laughs> and generally spreading the jokes to the whole class. And you can imagine me as an earnest young teacher working with this situation. And... Uh, what I wanted to happen, which was wonderful, flowing, serious discussions about bringing ethical reflection into all parts of their lives, I didn't think it was happening. <laughs> and, you know, at least it wasn't like when I substituted, substitute taught in elementary schools and people would turn off the lights and throw paint around at each other. <laughs> anyway, this is, this is the road that leads to sitting up here <laughs> as a teacher. And so um, there I was, and I, I was basically suffering. I would, I would be very frustrated, and what I wanted to happen wasn't happening. I was putting out a lot of energy, and I just didn't think they were serious and, you know, I didn't know what to do and with the football players and, and so forth. And I was very frustrated and not having a good time. And I know about halfway through the semester, I remembered that I had heard this teaching from reading the uh, Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu uh, scripture, which is uh, a teaching about many things. But one of the core teachings there is about action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. And I remembered that teaching, and I said, that's a great teaching. Um, That doesn't apply to my situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My situation, there's clearly a right way to do it. And it's, you know, I'm doing it, but they're not not good. And you can see there was probably a a certain amount of, of judging and blaming and thinking that they were the problem and so forth. And... But I, I remember this teaching, and I, was, I think I was actually uh, somewhat uh, desperate. And so I, I just said, let me, try, let me try this teaching. Let me see if I can 
totally do my best, but then not be so concerned about what happens. You know, just let things be what they are. And so I tried that for the second part of the semester, and I was much more relaxed. I was, uh, I had no idea what was happening with the teaching. <laughs> I thought it was okay, maybe some people were learning, I don't know, but you know, I'm, I got a contract, I'm going to stay here. And I just, I worked with that, sort of letting go of my sense of the way it should be. And just, but, but it still meant preparing well, doing my best, but then just not, you know, at the end of the class I just said, I don't know what that was about, but I did my best. And it was um, tremendously relaxing for me. Actually, I did find at the end of the semester, I was very surprised by people's evaluations. Some people said they actually learned a lot. And a year later, one of the football players came up to me, and he had totally nothing to gain. You know, there was no way I had any uh, power over him. And he told me that he learned more in my class than he had in so many other classes. And um, I didn't tell him what I was probably thinking at the time, which was that you could have fooled me. <laughs> but in any case, uh, there, was, there, was, there was a deepening, and something in that experience just clicked. And I said, this is clearly an important teaching. This is clearly something to work with. And I know since then I've had that much more fully in my consciousness. And it's a very, it's a very beautiful, powerful, difficult teaching. It's one that, that really when we look to our daily lives, we have numerous opportunities to practice it. And I want to suggest it as a one way to focus with our daily lives where we're constantly acting. Now it's a beautiful teaching that we find expressed in many traditions. In a way, it's a universal theme. We do find it in the Gita, and I wanted to read you just a, a short passage where, where it's um, expressed in this way, uh, talking about non-attachment to the fruits of one's actions. This is Krishna speaking in, in the Gita. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work, victorious one. The same in success and misfortune, this evenness, that is discipline. And that's a teaching which has influenced people like Gandhi and many, many people. I wanted to read you something else by uh, a contemporary activist named Vandana Shiva, who's uh, been a writer and an activist. She worked with the tree huggers movements in India that helped protest against these huge mega dams that were being built and, and a lot of deforestation in India. And there was an interview with her a few years ago, and the interviewer asked her, you've had so much energy, what keeps you so alive? And this was her response. And it really points to the same teaching that we're looking at. Well, it's a mystery because you don't always know why you get depleted or recharged. This much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with total detachment about where it will take you. 
You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And we might use, we might use other words. We sometimes use non-attachment and so forth. You can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. T.S. Eliot said it in this way, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. It's a challenging teaching. It's It's a powerful teaching. It's also found in the teachings of the Buddha. And the expression it takes there is the teaching that I I think I've probably uh, referred to in the last years, which is the teaching of what's called the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly dhamma, loka dhamma. And the eight worldly winds are the winds that blow us around and, as it were, knock us off center. And these are the winds that, when we take this as a practice, we study very closely. (laughs) And these winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And the teaching is that we really act in a way without letting these winds influence influence us deeply. We have pleasure, we have pain, We have that evenness that was talked about in the Gita. And the Buddha is saying that when we practice, we have to learn about these winds because these are the ones that make us attached to outcome. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And and so a lot of the practice that we do with this teaching is to see the ways that we do get knocked around by praise and blame or pleasure and pain. And it's interesting just to see how that happens. You know, I remember a little while ago, I guess I had what's sometimes called a bad hair day. (laughs) And bad hair days are when, guess what, we get knocked around by the eight worldly winds, right? I remember it was a day where I had a really bad meeting in the morning. I went to a doctor's appointment in the afternoon and had to wait an hour and a half. And then I had a... uh, a dinner appointment with a friend, and there was some kind of miscommunication and it didn't happen. And that kind of day, I don't know, sometimes for myself, just that kind of day can make me think I'm, a, I'm clearly a, just a bad person. <laughs> or there's something really awry with the cosmos. You know, just like, you know, because of this day, therefore humanity is hopelessly flawed, you know, or just, you know, and let alone more serious events, let alone more difficult experiences of loss or disappointment, you know, where people can have uh, tremendous doubt about themselves or about human beings or about the world. 
So the teaching is to really look carefully at how these happen, how these, how these events happen. And just I thought I'd mention one other uh, example of this, which comes from the uh, Old Testament, the book of Job, some of you know, is really about this teaching. Some of you know that Job was a person who was much beloved, very pious, a key figure in the community, full of faith. And what happened to him was that he had a series of misfortunes. His uh, children died, he became ill, he lost his home, he lost his reputation. In the beginning, it was it said of him, I, I went and looked at the text, it said that Job, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And so this teaching in the Old Testament is about does his faith, does his commitment to acting in a pious way depend on the outcomes? When he has hard outcomes, does he change? And that's what the teaching is in that, in that text. I think we have a kind of laboratory for working with this teaching in our meditation practice. That in our meditation practice, are we attached to outcomes? And do we have full effort? And we can look to that as a laboratory because for so many of us, we want certain things to happen in our meditation. And if, we, if they don't happen, then we get very discouraged. And so we can look. And again, this takes a certain maybe base level of, of understanding and faith. But at a certain point in the meditation, we just cultivate awareness. We just develop that sense of presence. And yet, and we look at how we get attached. Oh my gosh, I was, my mind was just all over the place. Bad meditation. You know, oh, very concentrated, very clear. Good meditation. <laughs> you know, uh, I like the latter. I don't like the former. You know, when I'm not meditating well, it shows that I'm not spiritually evolved enough, etc. And so we, we watch that. And eventually, in our in a more mature expression of meditation, we just cultivate presence as best we can. We do our best. You know, I, in thinking about this topic, I realized that there's a completely colloquial English way, maybe American way, to say this, this teaching, rather than committed action, non-attachment to outcome. Sounds kind of Buddhist, you know. Do your best and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> That's the same teaching, isn't it? And so that's, that's very, there's a very American, and you know, I was thinking, who expresses that? Well, I think, um, you know, it, that's hard in a lot of parts of our life, but I was thinking, who expresses that well? And I was thinking, um, a lot of athletes, my, my old football players, you know, that athletes sometimes, they get really interested in just doing their best, and in some ways they let the outcome be what it is. And so there's a way, uh, you know, we can bow to, if this is your part of your world, you can bow to the professional athletes for offering this teaching, if, that's, if that feels appropriate. Um, so what do we do, what do we really do in our practice and daily life with this? I think that we essentially look for two kinds of imbalances. One is we look for how we uh, get attached to outcome. And the second is 
we look for how we don't have full effort, that we don't have the full committed effort. And so a lot of our practice of this teaching in daily life is both cultivating that strong effort and noticing how we can let go of attachments to outcomes. Concretely, though, this really requires us to be experts on all the ways we get attached to outcome. And you wouldn't go too far off just to name those eight worldly winds and say, how do I get attached to pleasant experiences and not want to have painful experiences? How do I get attached to gain and don't want loss? How do I get attached to um, having a good reputation uh, according to certain people and feel very bad if certain people think certain things of me? How do I get attached to um, being praised and really totally want to be praised all the time? Does anyone have that tendency? <laughs> and and how, do I, how do I just wither sometimes under some kind of criticism? That's to, to mature, as it were, in this teaching. We have to study that. And so there are many opportunities. We do, we do have um, plenty of chances to do this. And I think what we have to do is have this interest, which goes against our conditioning, to actually be interested in those winds and how we get blown around in either way. Um, we have to be interested in them. We have to start to see... What are the patterns that get me caught? You know, let me name, you know, let me name, oh, I just got uh, praised. I'm all bubbled up. I just got criticized. Oh my gosh, let me, let me look at that. Let me look more carefully. Let me name it. Let me name what's happening. Let me look to the patterns. Let me really study what's going on because we're really, I think, invited to do that if we want to follow this teaching. We're invited to see the ways that we, get, that we get blown around, that we get knocked around. What do we do with these phenomena? What do we do with the eight worldly winds? And then also to see what makes it hard for me to have my fullest effort. What makes it hard to be energetic sometimes or what makes it hard to have clarity of intention about my actions? And we can strengthen, this is what we were talking about with, with Peg, the, the sense of uh, clarity of intention in one's daily life. Very, very powerful factor to really help with this. What, when, when I don't have the outcomes that I want, do I not have full effort sometimes? Do I pull back from something because I'm not getting the, the outcome that I want? This is not an easy teaching. This is not an easy practice. It's hard. I think it goes right into a lot of the deepest part of our conditioning. It's a a practice that takes patience to really work with it. If you, um, you might think of starting to work with um, football players who've just practiced if you really want to have a crash course (laughs) in this. this. So what um, what does this look like what does this uh, understanding of committed action, non-attachment to outcome look like when it's in its more mature form? I want to point to a few examples of that and, and, then, and then close. One of them came from, I did an interview yesterday 
with uh, Dr. Uh, A.T. Aryaratne. Some of you may have seen him on Monday night. He was teaching in the upper hall. Did anyone go to that? Yeah. Very small man, about five feet tall, beautiful man who's from Sri Lanka, who has probably brought Buddhist practice out into the the work of healing the world more than anyone in history. Yeah. He's taken a major role in helping to stop the Civil War, but actually for many, many years before that, for almost the last 50 years, he's been connected with an organization named Sarodaya, S-A-R-V-O-D-A... I don't know if I'm getting the spelling mixed up. S-A-R-V-O-D-A-Y-A, I think it is. And they have brought Buddhist principles into village organizing and community development and helping with the development of the country. He has organized 15,000 villages with his organization. They're all over, and it really t- it really, they really have this very broad vision of individual spiritual development linked with community development, linked with the general transformation of the country. And he's been very, very active in working to end the civil war there, which has, um, which started in about 1983 and went till 2001. There was a ceasefire, and he's been a stalwart in helping to uh, give support for the ceasefire, including large meditations. Three months after the ceasefire, he brought together people for a large meditation. I think it was called a day of peace and meditation to support the ceasefire. It was expected that there would be half a million people there. The day before the meditation was to occur, a bomb was exploded right outside his house. 150,000 more people came. There were 650,000 people meditating together in Sri Lanka then. And he's just been effortless, very, very beautiful man. And I, I did an interview with him yesterday, and I asked him this question because I knew I was going to talk about it. <laughs> and I asked him, what helps you to continue your action without attachment to outcome? Some, some version of that question. And he <coughs> was very clear. And he, let me see if I can remember it because I, I haven't had time to transcribe it. But he said something like, first of all, I see my work, the basic aspect of my work is self-purification. I have my best intentions. I bring them into action. I may look like I fail outwardly, but I never fail inwardly because everything that I do could be a teaching for myself. Perhaps my failure means that I have to learn more equanimity. Perhaps I have to learn patience. Perhaps I have to learn something. And so he had this teaching of acting continually, and his life obviously has shown it, you know, with years of very harsh criticism at times from people, numerous um, death threats, and a few times that he's, people have tried to assassinate him. And he just kept, he's keeping on going. And he says, I act, but the conditions are complex. And so he has a very long time perspective. 
he developed for the ceasefire and the ending of the Civil War, he developed a 500-year peace plan. <laughs> he says some people are impatient. They want things to happen right away. But if we really understand the conditions, you know, there were years of colonialism, years of this happening. If we really want to have peace, it takes a while. And so we have to have that very long-range perspective. To me, that's a mature expression of committed action, non-attachment to outcome. And I thought I'd mention two other examples that I, that I know of. Um, one of them... Actually, no I, wanted to, no, I wanted to read three other examples. One of them comes from the playwright uh, Vaclav Havel from Czechoslovakia. He worked for years under the communist dictatorship, you know, guided from Moscow. And he, he talks about a difference between optimism and hope. So he uses the words in, in his own way. Optimism is dependent on outcomes. Hope, he says, is something deeper. Optimism depends on having the outcomes you want. This is what he said. The kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are difficult, such as being in prison, which he was, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is the dimension of the soul and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. And that's really, I think, the spirit you know, that led him work very hard under very difficult conditions. And I think that those situations told him that what was important for him was to keep that spirit, that heart going and let the outcomes take care of themselves. He did not have control. And there were a lot of very strong forces. Another example comes from the example... uh, I I believe that the African-American blues are an example of committed action, non-attachment to outcome. (laughs) And I wanted to read something that I found from one of my favorite writers, Cornell West, some of you may know, who wrote a book called Democracy Matters. And he said this uh, about the blues... And he was quoting at first uh, the writer Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. (laughs) The blues is an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness, to figure its jagged grain, and to transcend it. That That was Richard Wright's language. Not by consolation, but by squeezing from it a near tragic, near comic lyricism. This powerful blue sensibility, a black interpretation of what, uh, Hugh, uh, what uh, Cornel West calls tragic, comic hope, <clears throat> open to people of all colors, expresses righteous indignation with a smile and deep inner pain without bitterness or revenge. It's that quality of being very present to what's happening, but it's like Kabul was saying, the core energy of the spirit is strong and keeps on going. And the last example I wanted to give was from a friend. I, I don't know if any of you knew her. She, she died four years ago, named Maylee Scott. Does anyone know Maylee? Yeah. 
Mei Li was a Zen teacher, lived in Berkeley, and I worked with her for about 10 years. She died uh, young, unfortunately. She died in her mid-60s. And she had a phrase which she used all the time, which really expresses this uh, spirit. Her phrase was, devotedly do. Devotedly do. And she exemplified that. She had this constancy of effort in all sorts of different conditions. And it was a pleasure to be around her a lot because she just would be, always have very strong energy and she didn't seem to get discouraged too much by things happening one way or the other. She just had that spirit. It's really almost the spirit of the, the Buddhist bodhisattva. You know, Suzuki Roshi says, the bodhisattva has one course to take, whether the sun rises in the west or not. There's only one way to go. And it's this, this energy to really, I think, express one's deeper values and to know that that's what there is to express and that one doesn't have control over the outcomes often, maybe most of the time. But one, does, one can have significant uh, clarity of intention and energy to keep on moving and keep on working in a certain perspective. And so this is the teaching that I, that I, that's been really important to me that I want to offer. The way to work with it is to see all the ways that we fall off in one way, that we get attached to outcome or that we don't have clarity of intention and strong energy. And it's a practice that I, I think I really invite of both myself and, and all of you to really take that as a practice, a challenging practice, right? Not an easy practice, but... It's a practice that I think leads us to some of those qualities that we found in the mature expression of some of the people I mentioned. Very, very beautiful, inspiring, particularly when things are difficult. can be very powerful for oneself and for others. So I'll stop there and, and open up to um, any discussion that we have. So thank you very much. Please. I would have to say it's a fear I have about, mm-hmm. about uh, Buddhist practice. Yeah. I was in China earlier this year yeah. in a Chinese manner and that said the government there really likes the Buddhists because they don't complain, they don't things. You yeah. know? And I guess I have this struggle within me yeah. to to not care about an outcome versus you know, like an earlier teaching I got about trying very hard to yeah. to create a successful outcome or to influence. Yeah. And and how do you? Yeah, it's a good. That fear, yeah, really? that's a good question. Did everyone hear the question? Um, it's really about um, is this teaching a reason not to care or not to not to um, really want things to happen. Our, our teaching is sort of a, a passivity. Passivity or, or escapism. Where you can yeah. then be, um, um, you know, used in a way that you, yeah. may, you may not want to be. Yeah. Yeah. A few ways to respond. Uh, one is that I think that would be the danger if one just took the second part of the paradox, non-attachment to outcome. Because the um, first part is about committed action. And there, there, there's a way in which 
as I understand this teaching and as I've explored in myself, it doesn't mean at all not to have clarity of intention and not to care and not to act very strongly for what one wants. I mean, Vandana Shiva said it quite, quite strongly, right? She, she talked about how she had both uh, deep passion and she used the language deep detachment, right? So the, the committed action part of the uh, paradox is that we are really invited to be very clear about our intentions, to care, you know, uh, to, you know, to be very clear and strong about something being not okay, you know, to be, you know, to anything which really harms people or violates the ethical precepts or whatever. My understanding is that we don't give that up. We don't we don't say, oh, anything that happens is okay. I'll just sit back. I think that would be, maybe that's an occupational hazard of working with this teaching, but I don't think that's the true spirit of the teaching as we see it in some of the people I'm, I've been talking about. You know, we see it in Gandhi, or who, who's interpreting the Gita in that way, or we see it in Aryaratni, but it's, it's more a sense of that we totally do our best and we care, but there's some, the non-attachment outcome is not about not caring about what happens, but it's about somehow releasing the, um, once we've acted, then we don't have a lot of mental things going on. It's not totally uh, logical, I think. There's a way, in, it's in a way, um, acting very, very fully and then releasing one's action to the world. Does that help some? It's difficult. It's a practice. It's not something that comes easily. I have a suggestion. Yeah. It's kind of like raising your children. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there you go. Okay, now we've got it. <laughs> can you say more? It's about, the comment was it's about raising your children, and can you... And letting go. And letting go. So how would you express the teaching in terms of raising children? You try as hard as you can. Yeah. And you recognize, in a way, they have their own destiny, right? And you can't control things. So a lot of this is looking to the places where we want to control because I need this outcome for my happiness or my sense of whatever, uh, agency or whatever. So maybe that, that's... I should start with talking about children. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Please, yeah, Donna. It's also a big lesson about taking care of someone who's ill. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That you have no control over the outcome. Yeah, yeah. And it's a practice, isn't it? Oh, so much. It's it, because the, what you see is all the ways that you, in, in your case, all the ways that you want this outcome for your children, or you want this outcome for the person who's ill. Mm-hmm. And yet the, the action is, and you're totally doing your best for the children and the best for the person, but there's some way that it, the, once the action is done, it's released and you're not grabbing hold, oh my God, this outcome didn't happen. You know, if we do that, we... I did another interview a few days before with Christopher Titmus, who was teaching here, and I asked Christopher about the same question because I was thinking I'd be talking about it. <laughs> so, and he, he, he said something like, if you are attached to outcome, you'll go crazy. 
that there's something that it's just impossible. Please. Yeah. Um, right. That's a great question. I, I thank you. It really, it really, um, it really asks us to be be clear about what this teaching is not. Well, both of these responses have parallels in my life that I understand quite well. So that was that was very helpful. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Please. Uh, my fear was um, when you were quoting about the passion, the part about passion, yeah. doing your passion, doing what's right. Are there near enemies or pitfalls that you could talk about? Because I'm thinking of someone who thinks they're doing right, and the difference between letting go of outcomes and not noticing negative effects or um, being so righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, not getting, not allowing for feedback. Someone who thinks yeah. they're absolutely right in yeah. opposing a certain um, thing, like abortion or something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, that's probably not a good example. <laughs> no, I think I, I I'm getting your point. Um, it's a good good question. I don't know if I've thought about that so much, but it's really it's really important that. Um, because we mostly, I think, mostly focused on the non-attachment outcome side, and what constitutes committed action, in a way that uh, is not dogmatic or is, is somehow open. You know, if we if we're acting, we'd want to, we'd want to pay some attention to the outcomes. We'd want to pay attention to consequences, and to what's happening. And if we do something. Uh, committed action, non-attachment outcome doesn't mean that you do the same dumb thing over and over again. <laughs> that's one. That's a kind of blunt way to say it, <laughs> right? Well, it seems like there are fundamental religious yeah. people who be- believe they're right, and yeah. they're not that attached to outcomes. Yeah. Some are, but they just think they're doing the right. Yeah. It's the self-righteous quotient. That yeah. So how do we, how do we take uh, add that aspect to the practice? How do we know that we're not simply acting out of some delusion or some confusion? How would we answer that? How do we make sure we're not? Yeah, let's let's say that we have committed action. It's, it's another way to say it is how do we know that our action is as wise as possible, or as wise and compassionate as possible. Uh, we haven't said so much about what constitutes wise action. That would, so that, that would really be necessary to fill this out. That's really where your question is going. Uh, what distinguishes uh, committed um, unwise action from committed wise action? That's an, another way to say it. Uh, please, yeah. Last week I brought this up about a Yeah. Just just this work I, week I worked on that, and I have to lead a group Sunday about it. And what I decided is that I needed to express how the views were causing harm yeah. that I saw, and I needed to strongly do that. Hopefully, not in a violent way, you know, through my speech, but in a strong way, just to say this is causing harm. And but I found it was difficult because it just doesn't 
pierce at all uh, from the other person, but I just realized I had to say it to the point where I felt like I was causing harm and then not, you know, not go that far. But uh, does that make sense? I mean, it's yeah. to say what, what harm, what I'm saying is I think we can get into delusion when we're so blind to the harm that we're yeah, causing yeah. right in front of us. Yeah. So it's really pointing to what is wise and compassionate action. And we, to answer that question, we would point to, you were using the language of uh, harm or not causing harm, which brings us right to the, the ethical precepts. You know, that if our action violates the ethical precepts, it's problematic. You know, that, that, we, that our action, what constitutes wise action, wise and compassionate action, it would um, be following the precepts, it would have an understanding of um, cause and effect of interdependence. And we'd also be on the lookout for, if we were, particularly if we're doing Buddhist practice, we'd be on the lookout for um, attachment to views, dogmatism, attachment to self, because all of those are going to, could be um, expressed in the action. So I thank your question because I really was focusing, I think, you may be realize more on non-attachment to outcome, but we really have to talk about what is, what is wise action and, and what are the parts of it. And that's, a whole, of course, a whole other um, theme. Please, yeah. I feel very frustrated by the fact that uh, we live, or I'll, I'll speak for myself, I'm living in, in a time yeah. where I feel that our leaders in this country, a yeah. country I've always been proud of, I've always been very proud to be American and I am so embarrassed by the unethical yeah. uh, way that our leaders are representing us mm-hmm. in the world and the way they're treating other people. And it's very difficult for me. I mean, I, I, I don't even, you know, I can protest and I can try to talk to people and it just, it's a feeling of total frustration mm-hmm. watching our country go in a direction that I, I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. Every day, I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. How would you work with that experience in the light of the teaching of committed action, non-attachment to outcome? <laughs> Isn't that Saturday's? <laughs> That's what Saturday's all about. Saturday, the Dharma of difficult people does include leaders. Yes. <laughs> but but but. I mean, I just have to individual. Yeah. yeah. Make my own individual. Uh, and my own, I have to live my life personally the way I feel feels yeah. good for me. Yeah. And that still, I still can't block out all that I see and read and yeah. hear and watch. And why would you want to? Block that out? Yeah. I, I wouldn't and I can't. Yeah. But it doesn't feel good. Yeah, and, and so maybe would anyone else like to help with that in terms of the teaching of committed action, non-attachment outcome, because the people, some of the people I referred to, like Ari Ratni, he's been dealing with civil war, religious dogmatism, militarism, poverty, for 50 years, and he said what he said. Gandhi more or less did the same. You could look for something very similar probably in Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, the Dalai Lama. I think many of the people who I most admire it's actually, to me, what, what's helpful 
about this teaching is that it, it partly it points to looking realistically at the factors, the forces that one's up against. And, that, and that, that's where maybe the long perspective is helpful. You know, that Ariaratni does talk about a 500-year peace plan. He takes that to be realistic. And, but uh, uh, or someone, I, one of my heroes, Gary Snyder, he says, you have to really look at things from a 4,000-year perspective. <laughs> I'm not saying this is all easy. I find, like I, I said at the beginning, this teaching is a difficult one. It's a very challenging teaching. It's not one that you just do it and everything falls into place right away. To me, it's a teaching which is actually necessary to have long-term sustainable action in the world. Because otherwise, I think one tend, like you say, the frustration can get really, really strong. And, you know, it's, it's actually one of the... Um, this teaching and other practices, I think, are one of the great gifts that um, people who do spiritual practice can bring to those who are acting in the world. Because guess what? Guess what's the most common danger for people who are trying to change the world? Burnout, Burnout frustration, despair. And to me, this teaching is a way to work with those, um, those forces. Not easy. It takes Again, it takes all the tools that we've talked about. It takes community. It takes one's own practice. Because I think that we see when we look... This is why I wanted to make the point about the connection with meditation practice. I think we can take our own experience as a laboratory for what we find when we go out more fully outward into the world. But this is challenging. And I want to, I don't know if it's, uh, I mean, would you like to try to apply it next week and come back and talk about it? Would anyone, would you like to do that? Because it's, um, and I don't know, I, would you like me to actually talk about this again next week or continue? How many, how many would like that? Okay, and we can look in some way at that because I think this is this is the this is what makes the uh, our gathering really powerful that we can actually not just hear a talk but really try to apply it, look at it, and work with it, work with the teaching, and then come back and and compare notes. And I'll try to bring I'll bring some new stories and maybe some new twists and perspectives into it. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge. Maybe we're we're at time. So if you could be really really brief. Just um, the three of you, just be really, really brief because we want to. I don't want to go too much later. Well, I was just thinking of the old expression. I don't know where it comes from, but we can only do what we can do. Yeah. This is what I can do. Yeah. We can only do what we can do. Please. Is there some place where I can read what this is? This Siranini's teacher has. Yeah, Dr. Ari Ratney. Look on the web page if you have access to that for Sarvodaya, Sarvodaya, S-A-R-V-O-D-A-Y-A. And you can see um, on that website, you can find reports about the 500-year peace plan. You can hear reports about when they've brought, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to meditate together. And you can see reports of how they've worked in the world. Yeah. And there, there are also books and there may even be some books uh, in the bookstore because they're, they're, I think there's a section on engaged Buddhism in the bookstore. And Ari Ratni being so central, there are chapters about his work that summarize his work in some of the books in that section, if you want to take a look right now. On the Spirit Rock website, there's a lot about him. Right? Yeah, yeah. 
So right on the Spirit Rock website as well. Last comment, yeah. Can you just say the eight wins again? Oh, the eight wins. Okay, this, that's, thank you so much because guess what? One way to focus on the practice for next week. Watch what happens when the eight winds appear. Okay, that's, if you want to have a focus, watch what happens when the eight winds appear and look at um, what makes it hard for you to act as fully as possible. Those are two ways to focus. So the eight winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Yeah. The winds are. That was the headline of the Chronicle this morning. Yeah. 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 So let's just take a moment and before we and take a minute or two and reflect on how this um, quite challenging teaching speaks to you. If it does. If it doesn't, then. There are plenty of other good teachings. (laughs) But if it does speak to you, reflect on how it speaks to you. What's most helpful? And how you might approach the next week. And set your intention for the week, if that's appropriate. And also ask yourself, what might I do in the next 24 hours? What's my intention for the next 24 hours to to help set my larger intention in motion. Often very, very helpful to not have this be too much in the future. So, to end, recognizing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others, may we share what's been of value, the insight, the questions, the inquiry, the reflection, the understanding. May we share that with all with whom we're in contact. And may we offer what's of value from the morning outward into the world to all beings, for their benefit, for their healing, for their freedom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.